Welcome to another interview in the series of Radio Level 5. Today we are sitting here with Batsheva Ross. Hi Batsheva. Hi. <laughs> we, that is Bas van den Hout and me, that's Ola Winkler. And like always, we try to explore a bit your work, Batsheva. But uh, today we will also have a, yeah, a sound piece is not the right word. Actually, it's a piece of literature which you wrote. And it's, it's more or less, it's like a book. I mean, it's, it's quite long, the original version. The original um, version is around 50 uh, pages. And I was planning to make a recording of it uh, as an audiobook. And the recording we're going to listen to in the end is a, a test of the first chapter. It's, uh, it has seven chapters. This uh, text I wrote is short novella. And yeah, uh, and this was recorded, uh, although it's spoken about me and my first book, but who, uh, uh, Ella de Borca, she is an artist that used to share a studio with me at level five, and she is reading the text. And we recorded it uh, with uh, the help of Diana Duta uh, at her recording uh, space in her house. Just important to mention for that. And can you give us a little introduction what it is we will listen to, to, uh, to people make the people understand uh, what they are about to hear? Okay, so uh, the text is something I started writing in 2013. It took me a very long time to write it, it took me to around last year. Um, I think in 2013 I was uh, a bit of an, an art crisis and I was writing a lot of applications uh, and I really suck at writing applications so I wrote uh, once I just and you know you start my name is uh, if it's in the first voice but Cheva Ross and I'm an artist with that blah 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 and then I decided I'm gonna make an honest uh, writing about what I do, because at that time I had worked in a shop in Louise three days a week and I was selling cosmetics, uh, anti-aging creams. It's, uh, it's a side job I've been having for years and at that time I worked in a, in a shop there and uh, it was taking a lot of my energy as an artist and I was very confused about what I'm doing as an artist at that time but it was a very uh, certain thing in my, a very clear thing um, I do. So it felt like uh, as an artist, this is what I do. I go to the shop and work uh, three to four days a week. And it's a bit of a confession because uh, I wasn't very, I wasn't feeling very comfortable about this job. This job is a sales job. And I had to be an aggressive saleswoman. Um, I, that um, pushes people to buy things, uh, but pushes in a very elegant way and a conning way. And I found it as an, uh, you know, how do you call it, uh, a craft by its, its own means uh, to know how to do that. In the end, the text uh, um, introduces the whole environment of Louise, which is part of Brussels' environment and also talks about this idea of sales and um, it also kind of compares it to artistic practice in a way uh, how is it for me as an artist to sell uh, to work in such a side job 
Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, it has a few, since it's quite long, it has a few aspects to it, but uh, some of it is like portraits of clientele that came into the shop, and the portraits are kind of um, compared to. Uh, since I paint and draw quite a lot, uh, painting as if I would draw these customers, but I did it through you know, writing. And um, yeah, just that was the text. Yeah, maybe it's good to know that uh, you are using, usually as an artist, yes. uh, different disciplines or different uh, means of working. So you're mm -hmm. a painter, you're a sculptor. Did you before use a lot of writing? Did you did you work on literary texts before, in a sense? Uh, since I come from uh, Israel and I moved to Europe around 10, 12 years ago, um, when but I, I worked as an artist in Israel. When I was in Israel, I used a lot of the Hebrew language and was very much interested in that. But, you know, I moved to a different uh, surrounding, which Hebrew was less relevant, so uh, some of my works have this idea of translation between uh, English and Hebrew, and it was kind of sad for me to leave the textual side uh, at some point because I didn't feel that comfortable in uh, English. Uh, but slowly more, I feel more confident in English, so the text is kind of coming back into my work. So maybe we listen to the text first, and then we talk about it later. Okay. My name is Batsheva Ross, and I am a real artist, but I earn my living as a con artist in a cosmetic store. I work at a store in a shopping passage called La Galerie Louise three to four days a week. The store is located in the wealthy centre of Brussels, not far from where I live. The store, which I am responsible for, is located in an empty part of the gallery. The glorious days of La Galerie Louise are distant history, or so I am constantly told by the passers-by who randomly cross in front of my store and randomly start off a conversation with me. The store owners around me use the same excuse as they try to explain the failure of their businesses and their desolate existence as a whole. Indeed, Right from my very first days at the gallery, with its intestinal interior, I witnessed more and more stores being shut down. From the very beginning, I noticed that many of the spaces intended for trading were closed. The shops inside had moved away and left their slots deserted. In the vitrines of these empty spaces, ads popped up to entice new tenants. The landlord tried to mask the gallery's failure by covering up the windows of these empty spaces with photoshopped images of imaginary stores full of merchandise. In these two-dimensional stores he created, the merchandise appears very fashionable and new, but bears no identifiable logos. It was as if he had created a phantom theatre of abstract commerce, a creative attempt, yet one that only highlights decay. Three stores to the left of my shop, for example, a large empty space has been obscured by a huge sticker of a luxurious shiny casino attached to the window. Further down the avenue are stickers depicting boutiques with lovely generic clothes. Two stores diagonally from where I stand is an elusive two-dimensional toy store, and in front of me, a beautiful round display stand 
that I've been told once introduced diamond jewellery from a recently shuttered nearby store is now covered with a sticker depicting sumptuous gold watches floating in marble spaces, but their time doesn't move and their days are unclear. I sell cosmetics produced by an Israeli company that bases its technology on minerals and natural resources of the Dead Sea. I need to extract money from people. My role can be summarised briefly as someone who offers a generous and reliable smile, who needs to be loved and admired so that at the end of my interaction with any particular customer, an auditory signal is loud and clearly heard in the small shop. A sound produced by a grey credit machine signalling permission from this particular customer's credit card company or bank. For a sales clerk like me, this beeping sound epitomises an orgasmic moment in which my world has come to fullness. Ah, le petit mort at the small dead sea shop. A moment in which tension is finally released and there is no longer a need for this customer to be a customer. My great curiosity and concentration on this particular individual up until this moment then miraculously disappears and I need to carefully, kindly and firmly get her out of the store because her role there has come to an end. Thus, how does this sales ritual actually happen? I stand in front of the Dead Sea Cosmetics Store. My lips are anointed with bright red lipstick and my attire is black. I hold in my hand the buffer, a dense rectangular sponge the size of a finger. I stretch out this hand towards passers-by walking in front of the shop in a gesture that is meant to be generous. My smile needs to be wide and very bold. My eyes must smile too. I need to transmit a stoic calmness mixed with contagious enthusiasm. Sometimes I call out to one of the ladies, Bonjour, madame. But often I simply smile towards them, gazing at a targeted woman as if I had been waiting just for her, as if she, out of the whole crowd in Galerie Louise, meets the specific criteria I had been searching for. She returns my gaze with a big question mark on her face. What, me? She gestures to her sternum. I continue stubbornly with the generous, obscure gesture of handing her the unattractive sponge. I giggle at her gracefully. She approaches me with no choice and a look of confusion in her eyes. I hand her the sponge and ask, Do you know what this is? No, she replies, "Uh, a perfume. She tries smelling it. Oh, I say, then I must show you and take the sponge away from her hand. May I see your hand? She extracts her right hand from her right leather glove and reveals a shabby palm, which she proffers towards me. I hold the hand while my face wears a look of reproach. Oh, oh, please do not look. My nails are a mess. I'm, I'm really immensely ashamed, she apologises. Do not worry, I reassure her with a relaxing smile. I've seen it all. But in any case... Destiny has brought us together. I will save you. Pay attention. I hold the lady's ring finger and raise the sponge emphatically in front of her. This is magic. I place the rough side of the sponge and start rubbing against her nail. The first side is made out of diamond powder. 
I remove the dirt from the surface of the nail using diamond powder for five seconds. I juggle the sponge to the counter side of the rectangle. Now I massage the nail with the grey side. This is silk. This stimulates the blood circulation around your nail and underneath your nail. This helps your nail grow stronger and faster. I pause. Our nails also need to be massaged, just like the rest of our body. And now, I turn the sponge to the big white side, now we will use a secret technology developed by our company. I point with glory towards the sign on top of the shop entrance, indicating our company's name. Our company is from the Dead Sea. Have you heard about the Dead Sea? Of, of course, but I've never been there. Not yet, I correct with a smile. I hope you will get there someday. It is a beautiful place and is very beneficial for your health. Well, I continue rubbing her nail with the white side of the sponge. Now we will cover your nail in order to strengthen it and preserve it. And here is also a petite surprise. Are you ready for the surprise? I open my big blue eyes widely towards her, sizzling a secretive smile. Are you ready? Do you promise you will control yourself and not yell out of joy? By this, I build up the tension. Come towards the light. I drag her by the hand to underneath the halogen lamp which illuminates the store's display window. Ready? I ask again. She nods with a smile, thinking to herself that I am totally insane. Here you go. Voila. Her nail, ta-ta-ta-tam, remains more or less as it was. Still slightly dirty underneath, but now wrapped in a dry, shiny coating, as if coated with transparent nail polish. Wow, she says. Exactly, I answer. Touch it. It's dry. This is no nail polish, no chemical. This is natural, I proudly announce. She obviously acts as if she is excited, just like the way in which people laugh at the end of a joke, even if the punchline isn't very funny. But they laugh because they realise that that is what is expected of them, and people, by default, love to please. In any case, this does not matter to me. What matters is that I have made her an active joint force in the experience I am trying to create. While she plays the required role and operates properly, I shove in her hand the sponge and urge her to try using it herself on one of her fingernails while I cheer. Are you able to create the magic yourself? I build the tension by counting the number of seconds. One, two, three, four, five. She needs to rub each side of the cube. Wow, awesome, we pronounce together, half jest, half seriously. And you know how long it will hold on your nail like this? No, she is helpless. Two weeks, two weeks. You can take a shower, wash dishes, sweep your house and do the gardening. And it would still be there. Amazing she says, forced to cooperate. But, um, but how much does it cost? She finally dares ask. Come, I'll show you how it works. I walk into the store assertively, without hesitation, and she follows. Can I have your right hand again? I command. The hand is humbly served. Now, we need to take care of your cuticles. They are dry. When they're dry, it's not healthy. I tell all my clients that their skin is dry, even when it is not. I say to all of them that I can detect that their skin is particularly sensitive. From my wide experience with clientele, I've found out all women want to believe they are special, for better or worse. Do you 
usually do anything about your cuticles. No. Excellent, I say to her surprisingly, because if you would have gone to a beauty salon, they would have cut them and pushed them inside, and that's very bad. The best is to nourish, and I pull out a small tube. This is cuticle oil. It contains minerals from the Dead Sea. You probably know that Dead Sea minerals are very, very nourishing for the skin. It also contains vitamins A and E, which we always lose around our nails. But how much does it cost? Just say it. How much is it? This is what she thinks to herself, but doesn't dare be impolite and ask again. Next thing you know, I've been trying to sell her four products. A cuticle oil that will make your cuticles go away. Bye bye. A quality hand cream that absorbs immediately and leaves the skin feeling as if a silk glove is covering it. A nail file that seems at first glance to be made of a strip of cardboard covered with simple sandpaper, but I indicate that it is made of diamond dust. Diamond dust will not break the edges of your nail, as others might do. And that it has a two-year guarantee. And two-year guarantee for the magical buffer, too. But I'd only like the buffer she finally admits. With an impish grin, I smile and pull out a glittering box. But our deal of the day! And I carefully open the box with the four suspects lined up on a bed of plastic material covered with a felt-like coating. You can, of course, buy the buffer for 35 euros if you like, but the option of our whole nail kit is much more worthwhile for you today. Here we have the buffer for 35 euros, as I said, a cuticle oil for 25 euros, the nail file with the diamond dust will cost you 15 euros, do not forget the two-year guarantee, and the high-quality hand cream you can buy for 30. The normal total of the box will then be 105 euros, but the deal of the day, today is a special day. Today, you pay only for the buffer and the oil, 35 plus 25, and you will receive the whole box, 60 instead of 105. Two years of manicure and pedicure with the natural Dead Sea minerals for only 60 euros. I stare at her as she lowers her eyes and gazes at the open nail kit. Will she disappoint me after all I've done for her? With all the passion I've demonstrated. With all I've given to her. I got so excited for her. After all, it pays off. The nail actually shimmers. And maybe I, the friendly, overexpressive and full of conviction sales lady, am actually right about the deal of the day. Seem to know what direction she needs to pursue. And I seem nice and caring after all. She would not have to be ashamed of her hands anymore and would not need to apologise any longer when she is bare of her glove. She does not want to look at me because now it is clear that this expressive bonding between us has come to the test of truth. She surrenders. It is expensive for her, but it's worth it. She wants to feel good about herself. She wants to make me feel good with her. And since she has agreed to the deal, she convinces herself in her head that the product is worth the price. For sure. And how much she really needs it. After all, she had left home to meander. The day's nuances had clouded her, and the solutions for small and big troubles weren't clearly in front of her eyes. She had planned this time for herself to reflect on matters and to try solving them in the back of her mind. She needs these moments of taking part in a different task, something external to the essence of her life, 
something simple and rewarding, and one that requires a certain degree of decision-making, but the challenge must be simple and cute. A challenge that will make her mentally stronger. Something that will make her love and believe in herself a bit more so that she can stand strong when she is forced to go back and deal with the tasks and appellants that are happening in her normal routine. Deadlines, high expectations of a partner, of children, of her mother. Maybe it's a crossroad in an article she's diligently writing. Maybe her dog is sick, or a family member is sick, or a family member just died, or someone she cares about, or someone whom she does not care about and she feels remorse for not caring. Maybe a boss, or a friend, or a lover. Who knows? But anyway, it is quite clear that the universal reason for humans to get out of their house and walk through shopping areas is not to fulfil a practical necessity, but mainly to practice emotional therapy, a sort of massage for the lymphs of one's narcissism. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, that is only one of the seven chapters which we just listened mm -hmm. to. So uh, in total it goes much further. Um, for me, there's several things because actually it is uh, really a literary text. So you're transforming like your experiences into a literary version of your perception of where you were. Mm -hmm. uh, as far as yourself are concerned, as far as the people are concerned. Um, in how far is what we hear true? How much did you work on the literary transformation in that? I think since I'm not a writer to begin with, I mean, I write sometimes, but I'm not a professional writer, it was easier to write something actually true. <laughs> so it is quite true. Of course, I mean, I make it a bit more uh, funny, and uh, but it is quite an extreme job. You know what I do. It's like it's it is a con. Uh, yeah. uh, sometimes uh, maybe not. Maybe I'm, I think that with this text, I'm also uh, investigating how much ridiculous it is. Ridiculous, but maybe there's a feeling that all of this uh, merchandise sales is a bit ridiculous in that sense. So just being from inside and uh, thinking all the thoughts that I expose in the text. Uh, makes it look even more extreme and, and cynical or maybe than how it actually is but you know that's how it is from the inside you know from the back door of uh, of being a saleswoman maybe yeah. you know you look down on the client sometimes or look or you know it's a bit pathetic sometimes but I think in my text I, I treat uh, this uh, duality of having a bit of compassion with a bit of cynicism towards the door. The, the funny thing is that actually it goes about the people which you encounter mm -hmm. and it also goes very much about the space because for me it was always fascinating this Galerie Louise is really mm -hmm. a strange place because as you describe it it's uh, it's halfway empty mm -hmm. I haven't been there for several months now and so I'm not really sure if it changed but at the it time it was also like 2013 which yeah that's what I just wanted to know because at the time I don't yeah. Not hundred percent sure but partially it was empty partially it was really like a like a labyrinth of yeah, of, of something which could have been quite vivid in the past, but it, it, it ran out. So you're describing this space as well. And for me, it's quite important that everything that you describe and the dialogues and so on are taking place in this really, really strange... I think in the first chapter, I talk more in the text. I come back to it at some point, but uh, mm. yeah. 
it's yeah, that makes me also think about to refer to these days, like, like the Ravenstein Gallery. Yeah. You know, like there's also always this coming and going of shops, and then that you think like. And you see a new shop popping up, probably with a person who thinks like, yeah. let's make this to a success. And you already have this feeling like, oh, oh you're going to have it more in Corona, like after yeah. this uh, exchange of shops and uh, this depression feeling of like uh, pushing people to buy when they don't have money. Yeah, yeah but the architecture is quite interesting yeah. at, at Galerie Louise because yes. you can get lost. It has this 70s touch to it or 80s sometimes. And uh, I think there's also like, wasn't there like a club or disco or something yes, underneath? Yes, underneath. You it have this really sta true. staircase. Um, so it's, it's it really was a part of the city or was considered as part mm -hmm, of the city, mm -hmm. which never really worked probably that much. I found out there was actually a film by um, Chantel Ackerman, something like that. I don't remember now the name, the golden 80s or a wonderful 80s that was like a musical done in Gallery Louise in the 80s. It's interesting to watch. How long did you actually work in that uh, store? I worked, well, it's an ongoing job that I do in different uh, places. I work as a freelancer now sometimes, but uh, at that time it was a shop um, in Louise that I did for two years, something like that, years. And is it still the same company that you're working for now these days? Uh, I don't know. I'm, uh, there are different companies. It's not an Israeli company selling Dead Sea pros uh, cosmetics, you know, or some kind of promise of a, of a uh, natural resource that comes from Dead Sea. And uh, there are different companies in the world that do it. It's, and yeah, it's Israelis that come to Europe or to the States. It's more in the States. I mean, it's really notorious. It's really, you know, something that people don't. Uh, confess about the, that they do in Israel, like they go make money on this, and then come back with the money. But I don't think it's, uh, you know, at least in Europe, uh, the industry is not 100% uh, ugly sales. Mm. But it's, it's a job that you ever since do since then, like 2013. Is there something about it because you felt the need to connect it to your artist practice and you still do it these days? What is it in this job that fascinates you and keeps you going and how to connect it to your uh, artistic work? It's a good question. I don't know how it, it's part of me. It's, um, it's like Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. I go to the studio <laughs> and do my thing and then, uh, and then I have days where I'm not the artist and I do that thing and uh, I, I hide it from my clients, when I, my customers, when, that I'm an artist and I hide it from the art world that I have a side job and I think there's also something to say about the fact that many artists have side jobs which are totally disconnected to the art world and they and like there's always like a mystery how do artists make make their means because many of them have side jobs which are totally not connected or they work as dealers and uh, like uh, handlers and um, in galleries or do teaching in some kind of high schools or but some of them just work in restaurants or do something uh, totally different and something is something about it is really not exposed when you meet another artist he's not gonna and like an opening he's not gonna tell you about his side job it's like something a bit shameful in the yeah. art world and is, is it something that fascinates you because often the customers you're dealing with it's so far-fetched from your artistic practice that it's uh, fascinates you to observe 
like also the, the personal aspect of it of the clients yeah it's really i think what is interesting is um what is interesting to me i didn't know how much it's linked to begin with with my artist practice but uh, with time i find i draw my artist practice to uh, with uh how would i put it um with time, I feel like it becomes an element in my art practice. Things that I've learned from my side job are something I want to continue investigating in uh, in my art practice these days. I think that um, for years I've been, I, you know, I come from a religious background, so I deal with a religious authority, and then it became a subject in my art practice, the question of authority and spiritual authority. And I think that as a uh, sales clerk, where I was introducing or convincing people to that my products uh, are going to save their lives, going to save their skin, make them look 10 years younger, I became an authority myself. And it was an interesting place for me to investigate. Mm. Uh, what's my authority? How can I... And I was, I'm not a, a cosmetic expert. I mean, I learned my, a lot from my work, but yeah, it, I I made myself an authority. Mm. It yeah, it fascinates me. I don't know. It's just my observation, but um, it's just something I'm thinking of now. If also I think about your other works, like uh, you have this work in this plastic uh, kind of tube with the hanging cigarettes, uh, mm -hmm. work with the, the hanging brooms from the ceiling. Now we're surrounded by paintings where you see scenes of a yoga class mm -hmm. and connected to your side job. Always this element of health and cleaning mm -hmm. is present in a way like yoga. It's always about the body and cleaning the mind or cleaning or when it comes to the cigarettes, that is actually the opposite of healthy. So is it... Uh, uh, um, is it coincidence? Or? I think uh, cleaning is something new I heard. It's uh, interesting to think about. I think that I have uh, I deal with the questions of morality uh, consciously and the questions of uh, dirty and clean. Yeah, I had rooms. I had uh, I think that morality or cleanness in the physical sense um, implicates about purity of the soul. And, uh, so in that sense, yes. Uh, Again, I think that uh, I see it as a profound, uh, or I'm trying to investigate some kind of spirituality or look at art in a romantic way as a spiritual um, way to, you know, uh, as an aid, uh, something that could help you uh, be more spiritual. And it sounds very romantic, but maybe there's uh, this idea that you could while in the, uh, researching and looking at a bird's view on your life, you kind of uh, um, find or understand your life better, or we as a society can understand uh, what's going on between but, us. Um, maybe this notion of purity is already a step too far, at least for me. I'm, I'm interested in something which is quite uh, present in the text, and that is what you just mentioned already is this is physicality the way at least in this first chapter how you describe it how, how somebody's coming in and, and 
you put on makeup or whatever, um, it becomes very, very physical. It's mm -hmm. like uh, it's it's there's some erotic part to it. There's definitely mm -hmm. a sexual part to it. Mm -hmm. um, so I can understand that it's concerning also questions of spirituality, of purity and so on. But at the beginning, the first thing that you encounter as a reader or a listener in this case is this uh, intimate but also quite direct form of physicality, mm -hmm. which is it's really interesting because I was... Uh, um, it's like you, as somebody who is supposed to sell something, which by coincidence is something which is physical, because it's like makeup and all these things, cosmetics. Um, it's like a trap to those that come in, because they just want maybe nail polish or whatever, but you pull them in, at least that's the way mm -hmm. that I understand it when you describe it, you pull them into an almost sexual, at least physical situation, which they maybe didn't expect. Mm. But they seem to like it in some way, so it's like overwhelming also. Mm -hmm. And um, did you did you understand it that way, or is it like you know, sexual? I wouldn't say it was. Yeah. It's uh, it's normally women to women, and not in a, I, it has an eroticism to it, to it, I guess. But I think that it has. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it has a sense of care to it. And I think that, uh, yeah, there's touch involved in our days. We're like, <laughs> how can this happen? But, you know, sometimes uh, um, I think that maybe people are overwhelmed with the, with the warmth and the touch. But it's, uh, it's that doesn't really, I don't really pass the, you know, I don't do something really outrageous. No, that's not what I mean. But what yeah. I mean is that you create a situation which goes further. I remember that years ago when I went to a to get a haircut, yeah. uh, it really depends on the on the person who does it, how physical it gets. And yeah. I'm not talking about totally sexual or whatever, that's yeah. not what I mean. It's, um, it's a matter if somebody is aware of the fact that it is something that one person is touching the other one and so on, and it has to be, well, it, it involves some intimacy and all these things. And uh, without getting too far, oh, that's not what I mean in your sense, I think you are confronting people with the awareness of this physical moment. Yeah, I think it's also in the tenderness of the touch in a way, like, mm. or at least when I think about what you tell with a barber, you know, so. I don't know, I think that, um, um, that any, any time you're gonna try to push someone to, you need to build a closeness yeah. very quickly. And you need to captivate the person in front of you and uh, and then you have to uh, dismantle um, the boundaries in a way but you have to do it in a way which is uh, the other person will agree so if you're a lousy salesperson you're going to do it and they're going to be irritated and they're going to go away you have to it, it is a, a question of luring a question of uh, seducing and um, and you have to really play this dance with the customer uh, and, and be very focused in a way and aware of where the boundaries are, how much can you push them, and therefore you have to be a bit of a psychic. <laughs> Is that something like, that you, uh, in, in the moment that you, uh, not at the moment of writing, but at the moment of really like selling something that you encounter very much and you watch yourself and watch the other person? Yeah. Uh, what is happening and you play around with this? Yes, it's totally like yeah. that. 
is it something um, which is yeah, I, I'm wondering, if we look at the other works, uh, Bas was already talking about this, but for example, we have some paintings here, which are in, indeed, I don't know if it's yoga, some of the uh, movements, well, it's like a yoga class or a gymnastics class or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, what is the fascination? What, uh, I'm wondering if it's always this matter of regarding things, of watching things, of uh, getting to know something maybe spiritual, maybe physical, whatever, of a certain situation, of a certain moment or so on, that I'm trying to understand what is connecting the literary stuff, the working in paintings, maybe the sculpture and so on. Well, first of all, I have to say that I am a bit aware of my choices and a bit intuitive about my choices. So things that you bring out could be also totally true in that sense that I am maybe less aware yeah. of it, maybe. Uh, but the what, stories I tell myself, I, uh, in my painting practice, in my two-dimensional practice, drawing and painting, uh, many years ago I started painting rabbis and um, I was interested in, in uh, looking at the portraits of uh, spiritual authorities. Then I had a period of uh, painting and drawing lecterns, which are podiums where people, uh, where uh, spiritual leaders, um, present or preach and I was interested in their physicality in their dominance in the space and their uh, anthropomorphism yeah. but the drawings as far as I think I know them um, they're without the persons right it's just this piece yes, of furniture yes. and now I decided after in while writing that text I was actually interested in uh, thinking okay what's the next thing that I'll, I'll write about and then I was thinking about all these classes and I thought it was uh, these classes of uh, yoga, Pilates that you go to in your local gym and uh, there's a weird intimacy between people that are not connected to each other and they're not even going to talk to each other after the class, but then you see them every time and there's a weird, there's an airy feeling between people in the community. And it didn't turn out to be a text, it turned out to be a series of paintings that I'm working on these days, paintings and drawings. And these are, uh, I think, in a way, continuations to these lecterns and rabbis and spiritual authorities. But I, I'm kind of uh, investigating or researching how I feel about it while I paint and draw. And I think there's a sense of community, but there's a sense of uh, some leader. Do you trust them? Do you not? What, how much is this is game or is it? Because it's spirituality, but it's not in a context which is religious. Uh, my previous subject matters, I mean, with my uh, drawings and paintings were uh, very religious, and, and this one is not. And it's interesting for me to examine it from a maybe religion, a religious prism. Um, but it's, it, it's also about the hierarchy between the yoga teacher or whatever, yeah. yogi, yeah. I don't know, and the group, right? So yes, but it, but it also became almost this kind of new new religion in that sense of like with with a like these days that uh, the time we're living in and that people search for uh, uh, mental balance and I think in, in in the past when when people were more religious in general they searched it in, in 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 their religion but since it's more and more disappearing this this becomes a way for people to clear up their mind so for me it has quite a also it has a religious aspect also mm -hmm. because what you say you have this teacher and that's kind of the leader in that moment and he 
knows what's good and um, do you also see it kind of like that or um, I feel like in the past religion was mainly served for uh, as a community like I think we live in an era where we really try to as an individuals to control our being and I don't know if it was so much like that I mean maybe it was uh yeah it's a continuation of spirituality or spiritual and i think people i don't know i don't know if people consider it so much as a spiritual thing but uh, this whole idea of redemption uh within uh, bodily practices today i think today our physicality becomes really a, a religious um aspect more than was previous mm -hmm. days like also when i i sell these uh cosmetics these anti-aging creams it's like i am redeeming you from uh you know from your older age your body is gonna feel much better i mean it's oh i think that's what we sell today that's the that's the religious so the different redemption maybe of prosperity of uh, closeness to god and now we feel like we're, we should be the best people by being the best living the best in our own skin or um, having perfection you said that you come from a rather did you say religious background or yeah, at least yeah. you, you you were brought up quite in a religious yeah. surrounding um is that something that you had to get free that you had to free yourself from or did you did your view and spirituality change during the years in the sense of that you explored it and and found another topic or and another perspective on it how how it well it depends on the question is a bit stupid because it first of all it needs to be cleared what you considered as spirituality when you were a kid for example mm. I myself am, I was brought up in a Protestant family but even that didn't really matter too much I mean once you pay year to the church and it was more out of routine or whatever so um, But if you say it's a spiritual background, maybe it is a traditional background, a Jewish traditional background. I don't know. I have no idea. So, but it could be something which is um, quite important for you. But it can also be for a kid or for a teenager or whatever something which is um, feeling like a cage. And it doesn't mean that you have to get rid of it, but you have to transform your own perception of spirituality first. So I think uh, it's a whole big subject in my life because I came from. A a religious and orthodox background, but I come also from a, a family of scholars. So uh, my mother is a theologist. So there was a, this idea of practicing religion, but also very much philosophizing it, about it and understanding it in a very postmodern way and a very advanced intellectual way. Um, I. I am not, I do not follow the religious law according to how I was brought up and that was a big issue in my life But uh, and yeah, when I was younger. Uh, but it was and also uh, intellectually something that was uh, something I would deal with or maybe not even intellectually, expressively because uh, I, there's something that way I was brought up that was uh, the religions, the religion was very intellectual, but it did have an underneath tone, which is very emotional. Um, and I think in a way I'm not religious, but there's something I am carrying with uh, affiliation or a love 
towards religion and belief towards not the specificality or the belief itself, but uh, a sort of nostalgia or understanding of a human need in uh, religion. Yeah, because what I find interesting, like, sorry, because I know your practice and uh, also with my practice, like in a way, my my background is still quite present in the work of like how I keep on researching things. That's what I find interesting, and also in your practice, like uh, spirit spirituality, mm-hmm. is an ongoing research that uh, that also feels like it comes from the past, and it's like a never-ending topic in a way. Like, what, what does it mean? Where does it come from? How to achieve? And yeah, do you feel like? Um, Will it, will it be a topic that, that will always stay present in a way through your whole life, but also in your artistic practice? Do you like, like but I like with, with my thing is that it, you always search for answers, and as soon as you get them, it opens up again, and you search for new questions. And like, it, in a way, you want to uh, answer certain questions, but in the, uh, on the other hand, you never want to end this topic and to have it to be finished in a way. Mm. I think that, um, well, never say never. I don't know what my work is going to be about in five, ten years. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's going to be not to them. But I have a feeling that it's something very much as part of my core as the way I understand or I experience life. It's not, uh, it's uh, the seek for the uh, profound, uh, for the, uh, uh, like, yes, of a, a meaning which is beyond uh Every day. I don't know how to say it, but I guess I, it's going to be always a subject. Even even now that I took the step and, and went out of uh, depicting religious, um, um, like the rabbis or the lecterns, and I'm going to a totally non-religious environment, and, but still I'm looking at it in a way. Maybe I'm allowing myself to go there because I'm still looking at it in a religious way. Maybe the next step will be even letting go of the whole religious thing and just looking mm. at it. Who knows? I don't know. And because I think we spoke about it before, and uh, we both have this feeling of, as an artist, being on kind of a sideline that you observe uh, society in a way. And uh, Do you also feel like Stepping out outside of this religious world, but even also moving out of Israel, gave you also this this double sideline in a way, like that you could observe from not being inside of Israel, but being outside of it, and to have a more um, perspective from the sideline. I think my works now don't have to do much with Israel. <laughs> no, but. Um, in a way to t- take distance from this background in a way like I don't, I don't say your work is about that yeah. but um, this uh, spiritual aspect uh, finds its core there so to have a uh, more distance from it to to observe it in a better way I think the fact that I'm not in Israel is quite a personal you know for my own uh, you know for my own personal life and uh, uh, trajectory and the what I do now, of course, my art, of course, has a connection to my personal history. But uh, I observe what's going in Israel as a as a human being. But I don't know if in my works mm-hmm. now I do exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Or more general, um, as none of us here is Belgian, 
mm. which doesn't matter that much. But then when I moved from Germany to Brussels, uh, I found that the distance is much more than 200 kilometers. Or, and uh, so I'm not talking about geographic distance, which is bigger to Israel than to Germany or whatever, mm. or to Holland. Um, is the notion of home or not being at home anymore in the sense of something which you know quite well because you were brought up there? And maybe this is what buses. Mm. I don't know if you're heading at it, but it can be interpreted in that way that if you leave the place where you were brought up and which you know very well, even if it's only slight shifts, um, it gives you this position on the double side line. So you, you regard yourself, you watch in a different way what's going on. Do you feel that a bit? Not about Israel, definitely not in a political sense, but mm. in the sense of going away from home. Yeah, I mean, um, there used to be a time, a few, like 10, 20, I think, when I uh, graduated at Pittsburgh, I actually had to write a thesis, and it was a bit about uh, the land of Oz. And, uh, <laughs> the land of Oz was, uh, you know, where uh, Dorothy Gay would say, there's no place like home, no place like home. <laughs> And she would uh, do it, but her home was uh, under a hurricane or whatever. And it's always like my feeling like you love your home, but you, it's always this duality of uh, you don't really want to be in this place, which is uh, uh, you don't like your home. You don't want to be there, but you're always missing it too, in that sense. I guess you're always not there. Yeah. Yeah. But I find it interesting about it also, we just speak about it and like this geographical, like uh, taking distance. It's also moving away from the place you're coming from also allows you to become somebody else in that sense. Like, so your surrounding often wants to keep you the way you are, you know, like often the friends are saying like, oh, you're not yourself anymore, you know, like also your surrounding really keeps you in this frame of who you're supposed to be. So I think in that sense, it's also nice to leave your home because I think to grow as a person, it really allows you much more to search your own boundaries because you meet up with new people and uh, maybe this is my personal perspective. <laughs> no, I, I think that it's really nice to be in Belgium, in Brussels, surrounded by people who are far away from their home. And each of us meet each other individually. They all, we all carry our history, but we are not, um, we're not inside our uh, history or our personal history. So it, it, it's a place to meet individuals. And that's really nice. Yeah, but it's also interesting because you said that uh, you got away a bit from working with language because you had to make the shift from Hebrew to English mm -hmm. or maybe, I don't know, yeah. you, to, to Dutch maybe also. Do you speak Dutch? Not no, very. I didn't try to master the Dutch. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, and that is, um, even though, for example, German and Dutch is very close, much closer than Hebrew and, and English would be, um, I consider that quite a big step to work outside of your mother tongue, so to speak. Mm -hmm because uh, you're confronted with people who are speaking another language and for them maybe it's a mother tongue. Mm -hmm. Here with English it's a bit different because almost everybody here, except for Ella who is not here anymore, for her it was a mother tongue. But, um, but you have to find out the, the small uh, yeah, the small differences between meanings in words and how you express something very, very delicately and so on, which is like a new learning experience. And that can also be what you just said, Bas, with it. 
that you're not yourself anymore in, in a very positive sense because mm. you have to reconsider everything that you do. Um, yeah, hopping on, on that, uh, do you have the feeling that um, maybe your, your language became much more um, like poetic in a way, like that, that just uh, that, that the words disappeared and that, that the imagery became much more uh, connected to language, uh, like symbolic in a way? I think that every language carries its own symbolism and own world. And when I moved to English, it had a different um, imagery in Anchor. And it took me maybe my art crisis, <laughs> which I, uh, the text led me to, it was like something that I had to overcome. And now maybe I'm in the other end of it and feel a bit more with the language and with uh, the new imagery of, uh, of the world I am situated now. Uh, when I was writing the text, I started a few sentences in Hebrew and then work Google Translate it to English and then find out and or I would always think about a word, a word and then translate it and then work in the dictionary looking for different synonyms or different words. And sometimes I would use words that I don't I never used before and I learned the word from but it, it's a very interesting process to write in a different language which makes you learn the other language but then turns it also to your own. What is a discipline that you feel most comfortable with right now? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, uh, I guess drawing and painting is my base. Yeah, I've been doing it from a very early age. But uh, I, I think that I always like to challenge myself and I always like to go to medias, which I feel like I don't master in a way. I want to, whenever I take upon myself a project, it's something like, I don't know how to do it. I never really do it. did it before. Like uh, painting now groups of people, it's, it's a challenge. And oil paints with this size, it's a challenge. And writing in English was like, really, what am I going to do writing in English? But that's the challenge. That's what you I like about um, making art is like that I'm going to learn while doing it. And if I master something, it's not going to be interesting for me. I, make, I need to master it while mm. I'm working. Could you connect it in a way to what we what we just said about like moving, like moving your, where you come from, like always getting out of your comfort zone? Mm. That it's in your practice, but also that, it, that it's really important to uh, for you. Yeah, I like to fight for, for things. Yeah. What are you working on right now? Are you these paintings? <laughs> these paintings. Uh, yeah, I'm working on this painting series. Um, drawing series um yeah i don't know what's gonna be next okay we're curious about what uh, will come next but uh, i think soon these paintings will be uh, shown so yeah. uh, let's wait first for that yeah. <laughs> yeah and i like the text a lot so i would like yeah. you to to keep on writing as well I understand that. so uh, yeah do you want to add something otherwise i would say mm -hmm. keep it like that Thank you very much. Thank yes. you guys for the Thank interview. Thank you, Bacheva. <laughs>